and welcome to The Worst Best Sellers, where we read racist post-war lifestyle porn so you don't have to. I'm Kate. And I'm Renata. And for this episode, we read Live and Let Die by Ian Fleming, the second James Bond novel. Joining us to discuss racism, sharks, and breakfast food is Molly, recovering classicist, bookseller, and bondage James Bondage enthusiast. Welcome, Molly. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. This pod I hope this podcast doesn't end up three hours long, but I also kind of don't <laughs> care if it does. <laughs> um, so I just want to start off by saying that Molly and I have a lot of opinions about James Bond, and they're opinions that are shared by almost no one else on the planet. Because, <laughs> because we both really like James Bond, but most of the other people who really like James Bond are like, take it real seriously. And then most of the people who don't like James Bond are like, oh, like, I'm a feminist and James Bond is gross. And we're like, yeah, he is. <laughs> but <laughs> He we... is, but it's highly entertaining how gross he can be. Yeah, for me, I think it almost... Um, it's like Molly and I both really like drag queens and I kind of put James Bond as like the other end of the spectrum where he's like performing masculinity in this really like camp way. Yes. But I think a lot of people don't see it that way. (laughs) So like when we were in college, we had kind of a club. I don't know. In college, I had this tendency to call every weird project that I started a club, even if it wasn't really. So, like, our James Bond club was me and Molly and our friend Tim, and we decided we were going to watch every James Bond movie in one semester. And we did. We did. And it really alienated a lot of people. Like, um, because we kept turning down, like, invitations to parties, because they're like, no, we have Thunderball on DVD. We have to, like, get through this. (laughs) Um, But then the year after that, and Molly, I think you graduated, maybe it was two years. Anyway, Molly had graduated... And, like, an actual James Bond club started on campus. Like, an officially... Yeah. An officially student-organized one. And so I went to that, and I hated it. And they were, like, so serious about it. And it was, like, right around when the new um, Daniel Craig Casino Royale came out. And so, like, we all went to see that, and they all loved it. And I was like, that movie was boring as shit. Yeah, I did not like that one. And there weren't any gadgets, and it was, like... And they were like, oh, it's so gritty and, like, whatever. And I was like... They took all the tropes of the Bond movies we loved and they just threw them out the window for a movie or two. Yeah. Like, by the time but by the time we got to the latest one, it, it was okay. And they realized that they needed to throw those tropes in there for their longtime fans. But uh, yes. for a few movies, they just abandoned all of the classic Bond movie tropes and it was sad. And it's funny, because before this, I'd never read any of the novels, but people who are real serious about Bond are like, oh, the novels are, like, so gritty, and, like, that's why the best movies are, like, the really grittiest ones. And, like, I am here to tell you now, false. (laughs) Um, And so, oh, and then also, uh, maybe last year, Matt Myra and Matt Gorley, is that, like, two comedians named Matt, who I both kind of like on their own. Uh, started a podcast called James Bonding where they were going to like watch all the Bond movies. And I listened to a few episodes and I was like, oh, they like Bond the wrong way. Yes, this this was my experience too. I, wa- I listened to one or two episodes and 
they dwelled on the things that were not interesting to me at all. It, it was all like, I, I understand that Bond sounds like, of course it's the girls and the guns and the cars, but that that's really not how I like it. You know, if you want to read gun porn or car porn or whatever, then that's that's not what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, like to me, what I like in a Bond movie is like some absurd gadget and like a villain with a ridiculous name and a ridiculous plan and some kind of deadly animal maybe a shark maybe a tiger (laughs) maybe bees (laughs) um yeah and and yeah like yeah some some sexy lady in a bikini i don't care that's fine Uh, maybe two maybe it's pussy galore and she has a whole lesbian flying circus i'll take that for sure but when it's like, oh, it's this like gritty, you know, he's like getting whipped in the balls and like whatever. Like, I don't want to watch that. Please stop doing that. And so I know, I'm, I'm OK with James Bond getting whipped in the balls. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if he wants to do that off screen, fine. I don't care. I just want Q to give him some ridiculous gadgets, which he will use in ridiculous action scenes later on. And I don't want to have to hear his internal monologue about exactly why each girl is, exactly why each of the women, like their individual body parts are sending a personal message to him. Yeah, gross. <laughs> that That is where it gets creepy. Yeah. Um, so I guess we can, um, so the one that we read was Live and Let Die. And I picked that because I do really like, this is the second one, I do really like the movie of this, but also the movie is like, it's like from the 70s, it's like 70s black exploitation racist, and so I was like kind of curious to see how that played out in the book. And man, it is like hella racist. It is very racist. I've never seen the movie. I've never seen, I- I've seen probably... All together, a full James Bond movie made up of bits that I've seen of all the different James Bond movies compressed. Okay. Um, Like, I've never sat down and watched one from beginning to end, but my brother was really into them when he was, like, a middle schooler. And just from cultural consciousness at this point, I've seen bits and pieces of different ones, but I've never, like, rented one. That might actually be really representative of the genre as a whole. <laughs> yeah, this one's really good. Um, Jane Seymour plays solitaire, like young James Se- Jane Seymour. Um, there's okay. It's it's pretty different though. Like there's a lot in New Orleans instead of New York, and I think my favorite part of the movie is where they instead of throwing him to sharks, they throw him to crocodiles, but they don't really throw him. So I'm going to just gently guide him to an island surrounded by crocodiles. <laughs> and then he hops across all the crocodiles' backs to safety because they were just like, well, he's obviously dead. Goodbye. He uses the crocodiles as stepping stones <laughs> it's, to get out of his trap. It's so boss. Um, so that's the movie. That doesn't happen in the book. Um, but I guess let's go ahead and talk about what does happen in the book, even though, <laughs> as is often the case of the stuff we read for this podcast, it's worse than the movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just to start off, I know Renata already said it, but this book is so racist. It's so racist. 
Wait, okay, when actual Bond fans talk about how gritty Bond is, is that code for racist? Is that what they mean? (laughs) Oh my god, it's so racist. It's so racist. Like, I was trying to turn off, like, okay, it's the 50s. He's writing this in the 50s. Maybe this isn't so racist in the 50s, but still, like, it's really hard to get over. Right, because there's stuff like, okay, he uses the word negress a lot, and I feel like maybe that was polite in the 50s. I don't know. But it's still, like, it's gross. But then it goes, like, way beyond that. Like, I'm, this had to have been actually racist at the time. Cause, yeah. I mean, okay. Well, there's, in, like, on, like, the fourth page where there's a flashback to Bond being told about this um, mission by M. There's this whole paragraph where he goes through, like, every ethnic stereotype and talks yeah. about what kind of crimes they're best at. Yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so actually, so I think, I think if you had asked Ian Fleming, he'd be like, no, it's not racist because I'm showing that black people can be good at crimes, too. <laughs> Because he does talk about that. Like, Mr. Big is like, you know, there haven't really been any, like, famous black criminals before me, but I'm, like, so great at crime. (laughs) Oh, my God. No, this is true. Um, So I've read a few of the Ian Fleming novels. Um, I started with Goldfinger, and from seeing the movie, I didn't realize um, how super racist the book would be against Asian people. Mm. And that seems legit racist against Asian people. There are none of, well, at least they're good at crime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's not trying to say them. He's not trying to say like, oh, well, at least their women are attractive. Yeah. No. She's like, no, they eat cats. When I was in college, I, the only Bond novel I tried to read before this was You Only Live Twice. And that's why I stopped because that one also is like hella racist against Asian people. And I didn't have a podcast then, so I was just like, I'm not wasting my time with this. Yeah. And, like, even with the whole, like, Mr. Big is good at crime, black people can be good at crime, too. Like, it's definitely implied during the paragraph where they're literally listing all of the types of crime people, ethnic groups are best at, where it's implied that the reason that black people don't do crime is because they're, like, too simple-minded. Yeah. Like, they're just... And that is actually, like... Okay, so Mr. Big is, like, the crime boss, and he is smuggling in pirate gold from the Caribbean, (laughs) and that's why James Bond is involved, because it was originally British pirate gold, so they want it back, and Mr. Big is in charge of this operation, and basically every black person is a member of his organization. every one of them and so that's how they're so effective because like every black person like who owns a store who works on a train like whatever they're all this huge spy network of literally all black people and they like call into the secret like black people hotline and report things to mr big and they're under his control because in case you weren't aware of this all black people believe in voodoo and he is rumored to be a zombie under the control of the voodoo devil. Yes, Baron Samadhi. So they're all too afraid to go against him. He's already dead, so you cannot kill him. Right. Yes. And then, so Mr. Big also is aided because he has a psychic tarot card reader named Solitaire, 
who is kind of like his pet, basically. Um, he wants to marry her, but they haven't married yet. By the way, this is a gross thing that was in the movie that wasn't really in the book. In the movie, she her powers only work because she's a virgin, and halfway through the movie, she fucks Bond and loses her powers. The movie is way more gross on this. I was really curious to read the book to see if it was this terrible, but um, no, the the movie trumped it on the misogyny. I think. Yeah, which is impressive. Yes, yes, because <laughs> bits in this book. That although the book was way more racist than I thought it would be, it was actually less misogynistic than I assumed it would be. Yeah, and. Probably because there's only, like, one female character, so... Because the movie adds in... In the movie, there's also a black lady CIA agent who's, like, super hot, but also is a traitor because she's black and, like, her fear of Mr. Big trumps her allegiance to the CIA. So... There's that. She's scared of the voodoo scarecrow. Yeah, she's scared of that. She's scared of the snake... Which, if you're a CIA agent, I feel like you should be okay with a snake. By the way, this is... Okay, I'm going to stop talking about the movie so much, maybe. But I definitely have to say that the snake situation in the movie, how he resolves it, is he's smoking a cigar in the bathroom, like you do. He sees the snake, picks up his can of shaving cream, and turns it into a flamethrower to kill the snake. <laughs> it's amazing. This movie is amazing. <laughs> So, but so Mr. Mr. Big is doing all this, recovering this pirate gold and selling it. So Bond is sent to America undercover to help uh, bring down the operation. And so he meets with an FBI and CIA agent in New York and they make plans that after they scope out New York, because Mr. Big basically controls Harlem. um, Because it's full of black people. Because it's full of black people. They're going to then go down to Florida and then fly to Jamaica where they think the site of the downed pirate ship with all the gold is to try and and hit both ends of the smuggling operation. Yes. And it's kind of uh, so there's sort of like rivalry between FBI and CIA um, because, you know, part of it's domestic in New York and part of it's international for CIA. But the CIA agent is James Bond's bro, Felix, who... My book has a footnote telling me that they first met in the previous book, Casino Royale. Um, Felix is kind of a standby Bond character. You know, he's Bond's American bro. And in the book, I didn't realize this. There is so much gay subtext between (laughs) Felix and Bond. I mean, (laughs) and I know people who are fans of the movies, there's of the new movies anyway, there's some like Bond and Q fan fiction. But these people got to read the book. These people got to get on board the Felix and James train because it is leaving the station my assumption (laughs) is that there's only bond q fan fiction because they're both young and hot in the reboot movies yes (laughs) in the reboot movies felix is jeffrey right he's like pretty hot i don't i don't know but he's black i'll I'll, I'll buy it oh well there you go (laughs) fandom also racist yeah but but not as racist as this book nope (laughs) (laughs) um so felix and bond are like we want to check out like the clubs that Mr. Big owns and scope him out and see him in person for the first time. And the guy in charge, the the FBI agent thinks that this is stupid. So they kind of do it without him, without his 
explicit approval and they go off together and it turns out that Felix is a connoisseur of jazz and Harlem and that black people aren't afraid of him because they know they can tell by looking at him that he likes them. So Here's a direct quote from Felix. <laughs> Fortunately, I like the Negroes and they know it somehow. <laughs> See? He knew he'd be black later on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they go to all these different clubs, and meanwhile, we get interruptions in the narrative of all of um, the informants of Mr. Big calling him to let him know where they're going and when they're going to show up pe- places. And they finally end at the nightclub that Mr. Big himself presides over and has his office in. And they are tricked into sitting at a table that, after the end of the show, sinks into the floor where they're grabbed by thugs. And then, oh my god, okay. So then they're kind of, like, questioned about why they're there or whatever. Um, They break James Bond's finger. Okay, you skipped the part where James Bond and Felix were distracted by the sexy stripper with the pug-like face who was <laughs> really, really into the voodoo drumming. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah, right. there was I, voodoo I, I drumming as part of the show. I avoid mentioning right. that. Okay, so this this one, James Bond described this, this black negress stripper as uh, having a sexy pug-like face. Yeah. Which is weird. Yeah. Um, but she, but th- this this lady is having like full on like orgasm reactions to taking off her clothes to voodoo drumming in front of an audience. Um, she's like mewing by the end of it. Yeah. And she breaks into a great like like shuddering jerks. Literally. Um, she's having a really good time, and I I thought. I can see why men of the 50s thought this was super hot. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> um, also super creepy. Yes. Thought I'd mention it. <laughs> and then the whole thing, too, is, like, um, like just as she takes off, like, her last garment, they turn the lights out. And that's when James and Felix's table goes under the, under the, the trap like door. The yeah. Yeah. But also, it, like, everyone boos, and it's like, you know, they tricked you because you don't actually get to see her totally topless because we turned the lights out. Yeah. And they so they separate James and Felix, and James is brought to Mr. Big himself, and Felix is left with some thugs. And, uh, who Mr. he, be- side note, who Felix befriends by talking to them about jazz so they don't beat him up as much as they're supposed to. <laughs> because Felix is the best. <laughs> it's true. Um, but James, meanwhile, with Mr. Big, basically, he makes up like a half truth about why they're there and Mr. Big doesn't believe him. So he brings out Solitaire and tells Bond that her one of her psychic tricks, he tells her the whole how he plucked her from some she dance club. She was raised by a voodoo something. Yeah, in Haiti she was at a club and they called her Solitaire because she didn't care for the men and how she can tell with her psychic powers whether or not people are lying and how Mr. Big is going to marry her because he likes having that kind of power on his side and he wants to see what their children would be like. Yes. So, but Bond can tell that Solitaire is there against her will and through 
like motions that she makes towards him, he figures out that she's on his side and she's gonna lie for him and he she needs to be rescued. And um and then they break his finger. Only one finger, right? And like specifically <laughs> the finger that he says he uses the least. The ty- the little finger on his non dominant hand. Yeah. But is somehow essential for sex. Yes. Yeah. So I mentioned this because like throughout the rest of the book he has a broken finger and he acts like and I, I you know, I'm sorry, if you are listening to this and you have a broken finger, I don't mean to belittle your pain. I'm sure it, it hurts. But he acts like, well, now I'm now I am a useless human. I can't possibly have sex because my finger is broken. Like it's going to be so hard for me to do my job because my finger is broken. Like you're a secret agent. Get it together, man. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. I started reading it as the the little finger was like a euphemism for his actual genitals. Ah. <laughs> and that then would it make sense. so much more sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so they, they dump, they're supposed, they're going to dump him to, Mr. Big sends him off with some thugs, and Bond, through acting like he's much more injured than he is, is able, which is a theme, he does that like three more times throughout the book, um, but he the, mm. is able to throw off his captor and kill him, and then kill two more people, and steal a car, and get away, and rendezvous with Felix, or go back to his hotel where Felix calls him, um, so that they can set up the next part of their mission. Um, oh, and the FBI is mad because they were supposed to keep it low profile, and they didn't. But whatever. Oh, and this is also when... Uh, this book has a lot of really detailed descriptions of meals, like especially breakfast. Especially breakfast. <laughs> and so while he's at his hotel, he gets breakfast delivered. We hear all about the breakfast and also another package gets delivered at the same time as breakfast. <laughs> and Bond and it's like unmarked, this like unmarked, un you know, no return address package. And Bond is like, Well, whatever, breakfast first, do to do. And the and package is a bomb. The package <laughs> is a bomb. And he is like, Whatever, I gotta eat my breakfast first. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, in a way that none of the other meals in this book are described, breakfast is described every single time he eats it. And he's like, eating these huge-ass breakfasts, too. Yes. I never thought I would have so much in common with James Bond. Like, this is a revelation. I feel my like favorite. we need to become bros and talk about breakfast. Okay, my favorite breakfast was right after Solitaire calls him and says, take me away, you must abduct me. And right after that, he has breakfast. And he orders, like, a double order of pineapple juice. (laughs) (laughs) Which, I'm sure in the 50s was not a thing, but to me, in 2015, (laughs) having a double order of pineapple juice is, I want to have my bodily fluids taste good because someone else will be ingesting them. (laughs) I mean, his finger's broken, okay? (laughs) (laughs) What else is he supposed to do? So when he's at the hotel eating his breakfast, um, getting ready to meet with um, Felix so that they can go down to Florida and start the second part of their trip, Solitaire calls him and begs him to take her away because she needs to get rid of Mr. Big. So he picks her up and he takes her with him on this train that he's taking, some super fast train that's going to go from New York to Florida in like less than a day, which well, I guess no, I guess it's not that overnight. 
super fast. Yeah, I mean, I just think like it takes like five or six hours to get to Washington D.C. on train from Boston. Maybe they had better trains back then. Maybe it was uh, over a long night, perhaps. Yeah. Anyway, they get they get on the train. The train is full of black people. What are they gonna <laughs> do? <laughs> Seriously, they're fucked. (laughs) Um, But one of them is, like, a nice black person, so he kind of warns them as best he can that, like, they're going to get jumped when they get off the train because it's Mr. Big's orders. But he can't do anything beyond that to help them because Mr. Big will, like, kill his family or whatever. So they... What do they do? They get off the train early. Well, first they... First is the first instance where she comes on to bond... And he, like, they make out, and he's like, we can't have sex because my pinky's broken. Yeah. <laughs> like, literally. <laughs> See, doesn't pinky sound like a euphemism? <laughs> Sam. Yeah, you're right. That ha- Yeah, they, they have not sex on the train, and then they escape. Yeah, somebody, someone comes and tries to break into the carriage, but one of the things the nice black person did for them was give them... Um, essentially door stops to put under the door so that it would be hard to open from the outside. And that's for some reason, like puts off the assassins. Like they try to get in and they can't. And they're like, oh, well, I guess I won't use a lot of force, just a medium amount of force. And when that doesn't work, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> well, you know. Um, and then they, with the help of the porter, sneak off the train like four stops early while when they sneak off the train, the only thing open is a diner, and they have to order breakfast. And Bond, <laughs> like, is very angry about American diner breakfast because, like, Americans are terrible at breakfast, and they don't have any of the like boiled eggs are garbage in America, and coffee is garbage, and this diner breakfast is going to be garbage. And he just wants to make sure that Solitaire knows that. <sighs> I okay. Um, there is a blog that Molly and I like, and uh, <laughs> it's called James Bond Memes, but it's not actually memes. So I don't know why it's called that, but it is like there are a lot of infographics, and it's made by this person who is like deeply obsessed with James Bond, and and there is an infographic that we'll link to, and it is breaking down all the food that Bond eats. And it is shocking to me that it is only 17% breakfast. Because this book, I would say, is easy 75% breakfast. Oh, yeah. Maybe this is the only breakfast description. Yeah, maybe other books he moves on. I don't know. This is the breakfast book. Uh, Yeah. Imagine me nodding, like, fervently in agreement with everything that Nava says for this entire podcast. (laughs) Um, My other, one of my other favorite food moments just is early, I think it's the first meal he eats in America, and he has Felix describe it to him, and it's like, it's like steak and like whatever, but then it's- And a hamburger. (laughs) And there were two (laughs) meats involved. Um, Yeah, it's like this big meal, like whatever, and then it's uh, ice cream with butterscotch sauce, and it specifically notes that Bond, like, mentally, like, frowns at the butterscotch sauce. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, like, the funniest thing to me. Like, he's the secret agent, and he's, like, gonna eat this huge meal, and he's, like, uh, butterscotch. (laughs) (laughs) James Bond is hot fudge only, my friend. (laughs) He is is decidedly snobby about weird things. Weird things! Yeah. Um, at at one point, uh, 
all of his clothing is taken away, presumably, um, after he's bombed. Well, so they they yes. send him new clothing so that he'll blend in in America because he's yes. trying to he's pretend supposed to be an to, American. Oh, right. He's supposed to pretend he's from Boston, which is hilarious if you imagine any actor who's ever played Bond adopting a, a Boston accent. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so please imagine that for yourselves. Yes. But they give him some moccasins, which James Bond turns up his nose at, and he's secretly tucked away his, his own shoes. Yeah. And he thinks like, oh, I need some casual shoes. I could put on the moccasins. No, I have my own shoes. Screw the moccasins. <laughs> and, and that is a part of the Bond character in the movie is that he's always like looking real classy, you know, always wearing the Rolex or like whatever, always wearing the tux. But the amount of detail and the, the specific snobberies in this book are hilarious and amazing. And you don't really see it play out so much. In the movies, it's just kind of like right. background dressing. Like, of course he's wearing that. Of course. Yeah. But you don't hear his internal thoughts about, like, yeah, I'm glad I'm not wearing moccasins. Also, like super op- racist. Like, okay, okay. In the descriptions of any black individual's appearance, he's totally complimentary anytime a black person looks white, basically. Oh, yeah. Like, if, if, they, if they're wearing... Anything that like a fancy British dude might wear, then, then oh, this is a classy, this is a classy Negro, in his words. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's kind of horrible once you start noticing it. Kind of the opposite of the snobbery is that something that made me laugh a lot is that he notices very early on that American alcohol is much higher proof than what he's used to in England. So he and Felix, he always makes sure to order very specific English brands when he orders drinks because he doesn't want to get too foggy headed from high proof American alcohol and that just gave me a moment of like you know USA 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 but I feel like that maybe okay I know with beer European beer is usually stronger but I don't know about liquor or maybe it's just changed from the 50s it's possible Um, from the brands mentioned in this book Occasionally, he'll mention, like, a brand of whiskey that isn't so great today. Yeah. <laughs> but in the 50s, perhaps, you know, probably was because he mentioned it by name. Right. So I, I suspect much has changed. So anyway, they, they so get off the train, they go to later. this diner. <laughs> they have a shitty breakfast that's just as bad as he promised. They get on the next train. They eventually end up where they're supposed to meet Felix. Felix is very surprised and dismayed that there is a woman with Bond when he arrives. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then he's like, oh, we'll have to rearrange the living quarters so Solitaire can have his own room and I'll bed down with Bond. <laughs> oh, darn. What a sacrifice. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and- he doesn't know his finger's broken yet, so he can't have sex. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so they go around and they do some spy things and they head out, they leave Solitaire and they head out to check out one of the gangsters who's part of the Mr. Big's smuggling ring. Mm-hmm. Like their shell corporation has a, a place in St. Petersburg where they're staying and they go to confront him about it and he's useless. You know, he won't tell them anything. So they go back to their place where they're staying and someone's broken in and kidnapped Solitaire. Boo-hoo. They're very upset. 
They make out to comfort themselves. <laughs> um, Just kidding. They don't textually do that. <laughs> they eat another meal <laughs> and drink some more drinks and drink so much that they are drunk. And, <laughs> and it's not gay if you're drunk. <laughs> And Bond wakes up and realizes that Felix's bed is empty and hasn't been slept in. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. <laughs> so these are all things in the book that happen in this order. <laughs> and uh, d- deduces that Felix went out, or Felix left a note saying that he's gone out to interrogate the gangster again, and if he's not back by 10 a.m. to come after him. And it's only 8 a.m., but Bond is like, well, shit, better eat some breakfast. (laughs) And then go after him. (laughs) And it turns out that sharks have eaten breakfast made of Felix. (laughs) And he's pretty fucked up. <laughs> so Bond has to take him to the hospital. He's very sad. Um, and, uh, leaves him at the hospital and then flies out to finish the mission in Jamaica, um, where he meets up with this guy Quarrel, who is like the nice, personable black person who's going to be his friend for the rest of the book. Yeah, I mean he's Jamaican, not African American, yeah, so it's like so, different. Yeah, different. You <laughs> totally know. cool. <laughs> And then Bond, like, takes a week or two to prepare for the mission by just, like, reading books about fish and practicing swimming. (laughs) And not drinking. He's, like, a detox. He's, like, doing a cleanse. (laughs) And eating, like, all his his breakfasts become, like, very fruit-heavy. He's, like, he doesn't call it doing a cleanse, but he's doing a cleanse. (laughs) Like, Which oh. is an effort for James Bond because he drinks so much in these books. Yeah, and, and he like, stops smoking too. In the first, like in the first couple chapters of Goldfinger, he has an evening where he has like eleven shots of liquor, basically. <laughs> so good. He drinks so much, and he says he he smokes like several packs a day with solitaire. Well, it was healthy in the 50s. Oh, right, right, right. But but there was that scene when they first encounter each other in private where she opens his cigarette pack with her thumbnail yeah. and he assumes that she's going to do that forever for him. Ah, yeah. <laughs> it was like she's going to serve him as his personal cigarette opener. <laughs> and he says, you're going to be doing that a lot because I smoke like three packs a day. And... <laughs> She says, I'm not sure I was going to do that all the time. (laughs) It was great. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I appreciated that scene immensely. So he's just on this island, like, literally reading books and books and books about fish. And and it keeps telling us facts about sea life, (laughs) which I don't know if it's come up on the podcast, but I have a deep fear and respect for all the creatures of the sea. Um, particularly uh, cephalopods such as octopuses and squids are the worst and I know Molly feels similarly and you all should honestly because they are the worst and James Bond knows it 
Stop laughing. It's serious. It's <laughs> serious at all. So he's learning all about our enemies, the sea creatures, because, oh, well, I don't know. So he, Mr. Big is on an island. Is he on an island or a ship? He's got a, a boat. He's got a boat. And all these people have tried to swim out to the boat because they know to swim out to where the pirate treasure is because people yeah. know where it is. And whenever they do, they get murdered by sharks and barracudas, which is strange because everywhere else around Jamaica and around the p- part of the island that they're on, sharks and barracudas don't bother humans unless they have, like, an open bloody wound. Yeah, they're normally, like, pretty chill bros, but now they're just, like, murder all the time. And uh, so they're convinced, and also whenever people go out to try and go out there and they're killed by the sharks and barracudas, voodoo drum sound. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Jamaica, of course, like all the native Jamaicans, are also terrified of voodoo. So no one will go out there because they think there's some sort of curse. So I guess, like, in theory, he's trying to research up on sea creatures to figure out how to mind meld with them to keep them from eating him mm-hmm. um he also asks uh he asks the home office to send him some shark repellent but they can't get their shit together to send him the shark <laughs> repellent <laughs> so he figures out cause like they're still it's still two days away the shark repellent but they find out that Mr. Big is gonna leave tonight with the last of the treasure so he has to strike tonight so he has to go without shark repellent and swim like two miles with this giant heavy mine to blow up the boat and save solitaire and I guess figure out where the, the treasure is and stuff. And he has to fight an octopus who tries to capture him along the way. It's the fucking worst thing. <laughs> Actually, it's the second worst thing. In Octopussy, there's a guy who dies by getting face-hugged by an octopus. That's the worst thing that I can possibly think of. <laughs> so at least that doesn't happen. Hug is a rather affectionate word for it. <laughs> a face murder. <laughs> yes! Face murder. Uh, and he gets bitten by a barracuda along the way, and because the fight with the octopus is so violent, Mr. Big knows that he's coming and is able to capture him, and he decides that the best way for Solitaire and Bond to die is to strip them both naked, then tie them together face to face. I think he only strips Solitaire. Oh, does he only strip the girl? Oh, of course. Of course. He's a woman. <laughs> Um, strip, strip the woman naked, tie the it would be totally them. gay if he did it to James Bond. Let me double check this. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Um, tie the two of them face to face, then tie them, put them on a length of rope and, and drag them behind the boat with chum in the water so that the sharks and barracudas will eat them to death. He's going to keel haul them. Yes. Also, Bond learns that's the secret, is they just have been putting chum in the water on the boat every day, and that's why the sharks are so cray. Yeah. Which seems like you would maybe guess that. But due to, like, no skill at all on Bond's part, but just really good timing, the mine goes off, the mine that's on the boat goes off and kills everyone on board at a point where they're not going fast enough for him and Solitaire to be too beat up yet. 
and where they're by a coral reef that protects them from the shockwave of the mine. Like, this isn't a plan. It's just coincidence. But it I think them. there was, I mean, there was a little bit of plan because when he was planting the mine, he had a choice between lengths of uh, fuse. Well, and yeah, well, he chose, he chose the seven hour fuse, but like, I feel like he couldn't have planned to be keel hauled while tied to <laughs> solitaire and, right, right, right. you know, all that other stuff. Side note, I found that um, strip her, he said to solitaire's guard, her clothes get cut off. Nothing happens to Bond's clothes. Of Although he's in, like, a scuba wetsuit or something. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, yeah, they get rescued, and they're both, like, really beat up, but M has granted Bond, like, two weeks leave so that I guess eventually they'll heal up enough that they can have sex. I imagine if a broken pinky stops you from having sex, lots of, like, cuts and bruises and barracuda bites would also stop you from having sex. Right. By the way, two things. I don't think we've said before, just in case you have never seen a Bond movie or whatever, M is James Bond's boss. In the later movies, M is played by Judy Dench, and it's amazing. But this is Dude M. And Dude M, in his message, says he's giving Bond two weeks passionate leave. And uh, Bond's, like, CAA friend or not feel like somebody else is like, oh, um, he must mean compassionate leave. And Bond is like, M doesn't make mistakes. <laughs> also, speaking of Felix, the first thing Felix thinks about when he wakes up is how he immediately has to contact Bond and tell him that everything's okay. And then hearing from Felix makes Bond's heart feel full. <laughs> uh, and that's that's pretty much the book. Oh, but also how it ends is like the British get all their gold back, which I feel like not great. Like, I feel like they stole that gold in the first place. <laughs> But Bond does not go into colonialism for some reason. The pirates earned that gold, damn it. <laughs> um, the weird thing, I guess, like, this, this book was ridiculous and it was racist as fuck. But overall, like, it, it wasn't as bad as most of the things we normally read, I feel. Like, I, I was much more engaged in it than I have been with a lot of the other male-coded books that we've read. And, um, like, I, I enjoyed it. I read it quickly. I was not necessarily, like, super bored by it. So props, I guess. Racist props. Yeah, I mean, I didn't like it as much as I like the movies. But, uh, yeah, and I, I think he does, he's pretty good at writing the action and stuff. We talked with the Target about how it's easy for that to get boring. And he keeps his chapters and stuff pretty short. And even, like, the action sequences, like, I felt like, like, still, obviously, it would be better to be watching a movie than reading an action sequence in a book. But I thought they were much easier to follow and much more engaging than they were in the target. Yeah. Absolutely. If the action scenes that occur in the movies went on, like, if we were reading the screenplay, I would be bored. I would be completely bored. But reading these things, like, I was trying to read a little bit before bed every night. And by chapter five, I had had James Bond nightmares. <laughs> and I have seen the movies so many times. Yeah. <laughs> and they're not scary at all because in the movies, James Bond is some, like, superhuman spy. And he can't do any wrong. Um in the books, you get a little bit of weakness. 
Yeah, and I think maybe that's what people mean when they talk about the books being, like, gritty or whatever. And, like, yes. there is a part we're going to read where he just contemplates his mortality for, like, no reason. You mm. don't get that. Well, not no reason, but basically no reason. And yes. you don't get that kind of thing in the movies. Like, the closest I can think of is, like, in Die Another Day when he's in a POW camp for a while. But that's not the norm. I'm with you there. Yeah, yeah. They, they are not dark at all. Yeah. Until very late in the movies. Yeah. A little bit in the Brosnan. Daniel Craig ones are pretty dark, and I guess that's why people yeah. like them for being more like the books. But I say nay. I say more gadgets, less darkness. Right, right. Yeah. Be a more Roger Marvel, Moore, be less DC. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. A Roger Moore Bond movie never gave me any nightmares. <laughs> this book this book gave me some nightmares, so I couldn't read it before bed anymore. Oh my God, especially that, that whole sea life chapter. Very yeah. scary. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> Okay, so that's what happens. Um, let's let's share some dramatic readings with you guys. Um, the first thing we're gonna read is the sex scene. Yeah. Not sex scene. The not sex scene. scene. <laughs> but before before um they start going at it, we get a little background on Solitaire and her growing up in Haiti, which is surprise racist. Yep. And uh, Kate will be Solitaire, and I'll be Bond. James Bond. (laughs) She shivered and a whole host of dark memories clustered around her. Above all, she remembered the first time in the home for where her black nurse had once taken her as a child. It do you no harm, Missy. This powerful good juju. Care for you rest of your life. (laughs) And this is written in dialect. The dialects in this book are like Claremontian. They're worse. <laughs> yeah, and every black person in the book talks like that, by the way. Yeah. I would say, I guess this nurse has it dialed up one notch, maybe, but only one. And the disgusting old man and the filthy drink he had given her, how her nurse had held her jaws open until she had drunk the last drop, and how she had lain awake screaming every night for a week. And how her nurse had been worried, and then suddenly she had slept all right until weeks later, shifting on her pillow, she had felt something hard and had dug it out from the pillowcase, a dirty little packet of muck. She had thrown it out of the windows, but in the morning she could not find it. She had continued to sleep well, and she knew it must have been found by the nurse and secreted somewhere under the floorboards. Years later, she found out about the voodoo drink. A concoction of rum, gunpowder, grave dirt, and human blood. She almost wretched as the taste came back to her mouth. What could this man know of these things, or of her half-belief in them? She looked up and found Bond's eyes fixed quizzically on her. You're thinking I shan't understand, and you're right up to a point. But I know what fear can do to people, and I know that fear can be caused by many things. I've read most of the books on voodoo, and I believe that it works. I don't think it would work on me, because I stopped being afraid of the dark when I was a child, and I'm not a good subject for suggestion or hypnotism. But I know the jargon, and you needn't think I shall laugh at it. The scientists and doctors who wrote the books don't laugh at it. Solitaire smiled. All right, she said, that I need to tell you that they believe in... The big man is the zombie of Baron Samidi. Zombies are bad enough by themselves. 
They're animated corpses that have been made to rise from the dead and obey the commands of the person who controls them. Baron Samidi is the most dreadful spirit in the whole of Voodooism. He is the spirit of darkness and death. So for Baron Samidi to be in control of his own zombie is a very dreadful conception. You know what Mr. Big looks like. He is huge and gray and he has great psychic power. It is not difficult for a Negro to believe that he is a zombie and a very bad one at that. The step to Baron Samidi is simple. Mr. Big encourages the idea by having the Baron's fetish at his elbow. You saw it in his room. And I can tell you that it works and that there's hardly a Negro who has seen him and heard the story who doesn't believe it and who doesn't regard him with complete and absolute dread. Then they are, And they are right. And you would say so, too, if you knew the way he deals with those who haven't obeyed him completely, the way they are tortured and killed. Where does Moscow come in? Is it true he's an agent of Smirsh? I don't know what Smirsh is, but I know he works for Russia. (laughs) At least I've heard him talking Russian to people who come from time to time. Occasionally, he's had me into that room and asked me afterwards what I thought of his visitors. Generally, it seemed to me that they were telling the truth, although I couldn't understand what they said. But don't forget, I've only known him for a year, and he's fantastically secretive. If Moscow doesn't does use him, they've got a hold of one of the most powerful men in America. He can find out almost anything he wants to, and if he doesn't get what he wants, somebody gets killed. Why doesn't someone kill him? You can't kill him. He's already dead. He's a zombie. Yes, I see. It's quite an impressive arrangement. Would you try? She looked out of the window, then back at him. As a last resort, she admitted unwillingly. But don't forget, I come from Haiti. My brain tells me I could kill him, but my instinct tells me I couldn't. You must think I'm a hopeless fool. Not after reading all those books. He put his hand across the table and covered hers with it. When the time comes, I'll cut a cross in my bullet. That used to work in the old days. I believe that if anyone can do it, you can. You hit him hard last night in exchange for what he did to you. She took his hand in hers and pressed it. Now tell me what I must do. Bed. Might as well get as much sleep as we can. We'll slip off the train at Jacksonville and chance being spotted. Find another way down the coast. Suddenly, Bond reached out and took her in his right arm. Her arms went round his neck and they kissed passionately. He pressed her up against the swaying wall and held her there. She took his face between her two hands and held it away, panting. Her eyes were bright and hot. Then she brought his lips against hers again and kissed him long and lasciviously, as if she was the man and he the woman. (laughs) Bond cursed the broken hand that prevented him from exploring her body, (laughs) taking her. He freed his right hand and put it between their bodies, feeling her hard breaths, each with its pointed stigma of desire. He slipped it down her back until it came to the cleft at the base of her spine, and he let it rest there holding the center of her body hard against him until they had kissed enough. She took her arms away from his neck and pushed him away. I hoped I would one day kiss a man like that, 
And when I first saw it, Hugh, I knew it would be you. Her arms were down by her sides and her body stood there, open to him, ready for him. You're very beautiful. You kiss more wonderfully than any girl I have ever known. He looked down at the bandages on his left hand. Curse this arm. I can't hold you properly or make love to you. It hurts too much. That's something else Mr. Biggs got to pay for. She took a handkerchief out of her bag and wiped the lipstick off of his mouth. Then she brushed the hair away from his forehead and kissed him again, lightly and tenderly. It's just as well. There are too many other things on our minds. The train rocked him back against her. He put his hand on her left breast and kissed her white throat. Then he kissed her mouth. He felt the pounding of his blood softening. He took her by the hand and drew her out into the middle of the little swaying room. He smiled. Perhaps you're right. When the time comes, I want to be alone with you, with all the time in the world. Here, there's at least one man who will probably disturb our night, and will have to be up at four in the morning anyway. So there simply isn't time to begin making love to you now. You get ready for bed, and I'll climb up after you and kiss you goodnight. They kissed once more, slowly, and then he stepped away. As a reminder, his pinky is broken. <laughs> his left pinky. <laughs> also, before this, he checked his watch and it was 10 o'clock. So they have six hours. <laughs> but that is not enough time. Which is either, like, a really romantic thing to say or a super weird excuse to cover up the fact that you want to have sex with Felix. <laughs> You decide, listeners. <laughs> Decided that the pinky finger might be a euphemism for something else. Yeah. But if other things are not working properly, that might be a good excuse to postpone <laughs> the sexy times. I can't tonight. My pinky hurts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. All right. I'm going to... The second dramatic reading is... This really bizarre, morbid aside where Bond thinks about the inevitability of death. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Um, So this is when he's flying from Florida to Jamaica to start the the third part, I guess, of the mission. They were flying at 15,000 feet when, just after crossing Cuba, they ran into one of those violent tropical storms that suddenly turn aircraft from comfortable drawing rooms into bucketing death traps. The great plane staggered and plunged, its screws now roaring in vacuum and now biting harshly into the walls of solid air. The thin tube shuddered and swung. Crockery crashed in the pantry and huge rain hammered on the perspex windows. Bond gripped the arm of his chair so that his left hand hurt and cursed softly to himself. He looked at the racks of magazines and thought, they won't help much when the steel tires at 15,000 feet, nor will the eau de cologne in the washroom, nor the personalized meals, the free razor, the orchid for your lady, now trembling in the icebox. Least of all the safety belts and life jackets with the whistle that the steward demonstrates will really blow, nor the cute little rescue lamp that glows red. No, when the stresses are too great for the tired metal, when the ground mechanic who checks the de-icing equipment is crossed in love and skimps his job way back in London, Idlewild, Gander, Montreal, when those 
or many things happen, then the little warm room with the propellers in the front falls straight down, out of the sky, into the sea, or onto the land, heavier than air, fallible, vain. And the forty little heavier-than-air people, fallible within the plane's fallibility, vain within its larger vanity, fall down with it and make little holes in the land or little splashes in the sea. Which is, anyway, their destiny, so why worry? You are linked to the ground mechanic's careless fingers in Nassau, just as you are linked to the weak head of the little man in the family saloon who mistakes the red light for the green and meets you head-on. For the first time the last time, you are motoring quietly home from some private sin. There's nothing to do about it. You start to die the moment you are born. The whole of life is cutting through the pack with death. So take it easy. Light a cigarette and be grateful that you are still alive as you suck the smoke deep into your lungs. Your stars have already let you come quite a long way since you left your mother's womb and whimpered at the cold air of the world. Perhaps they'll even let you get to Jamaica tonight. Can't you hear those cheerful voices on the control tower that have said quietly all day long? Come in, BOAC. Come in, Pan Am. Come in, KLM. Can't you hear them calling you down, too? Come in, Transcarab. Come in, Transcarab. Don't lose faith in your stars. Remember that hot stitch of time when you faced death from the robber's gun last night. You're alive, aren't you? There. We're out of it already. It was just to remind you that being quick with a gun doesn't mean you're really tough. Just don't forget it. This happy landing in Palisados Airport comes to you by courtesy of your stars. Better thank them. Bon unfastened his seatbelt and wiped the sweat off his face. To hell with it, he thought, as he stepped out of the huge, strong plane. Yeah, there, there's a moment you will not see in any Bond movie. <laughs> I, I feel like that was Ian Ian Fleming himself reaching out through the meta text to, like, give Bond a pep talk. <laughs> this happens in the other books, though. At least in Goldfinger, there's a point where he thinks he might be dying. And he sort of goes to heaven and wonders if all of his past girlfriends will be there with him. Yes. And they'll fight for him. Or, like, if he'll have to pick one. <laughs> or if they'll all get along and he'll just sleep with them all. Um, yeah, so this this moment when Bond thinks he's going to die seems to be a theme in the novels, but not in the movies. No, yeah, because in the movies he's very, like, more like a modern action hero who, you know, never looks back in an explosion and all that. And <laughs> I'm into that. I feel like in this book he would look at the explosion. And then, sure. like, reflect upon it for, like, a page. <laughs> <laughs> right on. All right. Last up, um, Molly's going to read you the most terrifying passage of the book. <laughs> uh, content warning for sea creatures. I'll do my best to give it a toss it serves. It was while he was measuring the dangers ahead that the octopus got him round both ankles. He had been sitting with his feet on the sand and suddenly they were manacled to the base of the round toadstool coral on which he was resting. Even as he realized what had happened, a tentacle began to snake up his leg and another one, purple in the dim light, wandered down his webbed left foot. He gave a start of fear and disgust 
and at once he was on his feet, shuffling and straining to get away. But there was no inch of yield, and his movements only gave the octopus an opportunity to pull his heels tighter under the overhang of the round rock. The strength of the brute was prodigious, and Bond could feel his balance going fast. In a moment, he would be pulled down flat on his face, and then, hampered by the mine on his chest and the cylinders on his back, it might be almost impossible to get at the beast. Bond snatched his dagger out of his belt and jabbed down beneath his legs. But the overhang of the rock impeded him and he was terrified of cutting his rubber skin. Suddenly he was toppled over, lying on the sand. At once, his feet began to be drawn into a wide lateral cleft under the rock. He scrabbled at the sand and tried to curl round to get within range of the dagger but the thick hump of the mine protruding from his chest prevented him. On the edge of panic, he remembered the harpoon gun. <laughs> Before, he had dismissed it as being a hopeless weapon at that short range, but now it was the only chance. It lay on the sand where he had left it. He reached for it and put up the safety catch. The mine prevented him from aiming, he slid the barrel along his legs and probed each of his feet with the tip of the harpoon to find the gap between them. At once a tentacle seized the steel tip and began tugging. The gun slipped between his manacled feet and he pulled the trigger blindly. Immediately a great cloud of viscous stringy ink rolled out of the cleft towards his face. <laughs> but one leg was free and then the other, and he ripped them round and under him and seized the haft of the three-foot harpoon where it disappeared under the rock. He pulled and strained until, with a rending of flesh, it came away from black fog that hung over the hole. Panting, he got up and stood away from the rock, the sweat pouring down his face under the mask. Above him, the telltale stream of silver bubbles rose straight to the air surface, and he cursed the wounded Postfeller in its lair. But there was no time to worry further with it, and he reloaded his gun and struck out with the moon over his right shoulder. Now he made good, going through the misty gray water, and he concentrated only on keeping his face a few inches above the sand and his head well down to streamlight his body. Once, out of the corner of his eye, he saw a stingray, as big as a ping-pong table, shuffle out of his path, the tip of its great speckled wings beating like a bird's, its long horned tail streaming out behind it. But he paid it no attention, remembering that Quarrel had said that rays never attack except in self-defense. He re reflected that it had probably come in over the outer reef to lay its eggs, or mermaid's purses, as the fishermen called them, because they are shaped like a pillow with a stiff black string at each corner on the sheltered sandy bottom. Many shadows of big fish lazed along across the moonlight sand, some as long as himself. When one followed beside him for at least a minute, he looked up to see the white belly of a shark 
10 feet above him, like a glaucus tapering airship. His, its, its blunt nose was buried inquisitively in his stream of air bubbles. The wide sickle slit of its mouth looked like a puckered scar. It's, it, it leant sideways and glanced down at him out of one hard pink naked eye. Then it wobbled its great scythe-shaped tail and moved slowly into the wall of gray mist. He frightened a family of squids, <laughs> ranging from about six pounds down to an infant of six ounces, frail and luminous in the half-light, hanging almost vertical in a diminishing chorus line. They righted themselves and shot off with streamlined jet propulsion. I'm skipping a little bit where Bond's skin cringes and he it is revealed that he has a Rolex watch on his wrist this whole time and there's a Barracuda and it was as he turned to swim towards the twin propellers on his way to the shelter of the rocks that he suddenly saw the terrible things that had been going on behind him. The great pack of Barracudas seems to have gone mad they were whirling and snapping in the water like hysterical dogs. Three sharks that had joined them were charging through the water with a clumsier frenzy. The water was boiling with the dreadful fish and Bond was slammed in the face and buffeted again and again within a few yards. Any moment he knew his rubber skin would be torn with the flesh below it and then the pack would be on him. Extreme mob behavior conditions the Navy Department's phrase flashed in his mind. This was just when he might have saved himself with the shark repellent stuff. Without it, he might only have a few more minutes to live. Yeah. So the moral of the story is always travel with shark repellent. Like and, Batman. Yes, like Batman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you know, that's from the 60s. So obviously Adam West just like read this and was like, that is my takeaway. (laughs) (sighs) So, yeah, that's that's pretty much what this book is like. The only thing that, okay, there is actually a lot, a lot of really racist like dialect spelled out. And also the N word is in this book like a lot. So that's in there also. Also, we didn't read any of the Felix stuff, which is kind of a shame, but... You know, just read some fan fiction. It's fine. <laughs> if you're into Felix or Felicia, <laughs> <laughs> as his feminine persona <laughs> might happen to be, yeah, you should read the book. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, so let's play some Would You Rather. Would you rather be attacked by an octopus or a shark? Hmm... Okay, this is obvious. You can't even think about being attacked by an octopus. They are so smart and strong. You gotta go shark. Yes, I'm totally with you. Also, shark, having having read some of the later books, I know that after being attacked by a shark, Felix ends up with a hook hand and, like, a peg leg. Yeah. I mean, like, the octopus is just gonna kill you. Just but gonna kill you. It's just you're gonna be dead. But if if I'm gonna deal with one of them, the shark is gonna take my arm and part of my leg, and I'm gonna be a I'm gonna end up being a badass Bond villain with a hook hand and a peg leg. 
Yeah, the shark might eat patch. some of you, but probably yeah, not all yeah. of you. The shark's not going to eat all, eat all of me. It's going to pick some tasty bits, and I'll have those bits replaced by robot parts. Mm-hmm. The octopus would kill you for fun and then solve a Rubik's Cube. Absolutely. Well, I understand what you're both saying. I'm still going to go with octopus uh-huh. for two different reasons. <laughs> One... Octopuses are smart, so I'd be able to reason with it possibly. And when that doesn't work, (laughs) two, my friend Naomi is like basically queen of the octopuses, and I'm pretty sure that she could get me out of it. They're not reasonable creatures. (laughs) This is terrible. I have okay. I can't talk about this anymore. Would you rather (laughs) Bone Solitaire or Bone Felix? Strangely. I feel like I have to go with Felix. With or without a hook hand? I don't think it matters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I would definitely go Felix. Um, He'd play some, like, nice jazz. You know what? If you have sex with Felix, it's probably going to end up a threesome with Bond, which I'd be okay with. I don't don't know that I want to go that far. Or he might, like, marry you and then come in on, like, a parachute. Yes. <laughs> but, like, I feel like, despite not having my compatible sexual organs, Felix has, like, a personality and is funny and charming, and Solitaire mostly seems to have fake telepathy and need to be rescued a lot. So, yeah. Alternately, if it's movie Solitaire, having sex with her would rob her of her powers. So okay, this is my her. problem. If, if it's book Solitaire, totally bone Solitaire. If it's movie solitaire, I can't deal with the guilt of robbing her of her fantastic powers. Yeah. Which, which in the movie, it seems clear that she really does have powers. Also, though, James Bond is able to trick her powers by somehow having the British government produce for him a deck of tarot cards that is entirely made up of the lovers. (laughs) And this is how he seduces her in the movie. So I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that, that, that her powers of telepathy are sufficient in the movie. Um, I'm going to go with solitaire ultimately. Hmm. Interesting. I don't think she's as powerful as she claims to be in either case. Yeah, well, it's hard out there for a lady. All right. Well, speaking of solitaire, would you rather have vague and never fully explained telepathic powers or have vaguely racist voodoo powers? Um, I think I'm going to go with the vague, never fully explained telepathic powers because I feel like you can use them because they're vague and never fully explained. You could use them for basically anything as an excuse. I'm wondering if, okay, if I have these voodoo powers, for me, would they work on all white people or would they still work (laughs) on all black people? I mean, I would assume all white people. Basically, I mean, basically, you know, people like Dr. Oz already have this power. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Correct. Because I would feel uncomfortable having power over all black people. But if it's over all white people, I would feel better about it. (laughs) <laughs> like, because then I'm just I'm oppressing the oppressors, so I want I want to do that. <laughs> oh wow, very good. Um, I totally don't buy um solitaire's powers, at least in the movie version. 
I, I think the the voodoo powers, both in the movie and the book, prove themselves a bit more powerful. So I'm going to go with that. Yeah, I mean, if I had a network of all white people spying for me. <laughs> I- yeah. Oh, God. If, if I were a white person, though, relying on a, bu- a network of black people to respect my voodoo power. Exactly. That, no, then that, it's terrible. That, then I'm going to have to undo it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In that in that case, if I am white relying on a bunch of black people respecting my fake voodoo powers, then I'm going with the other one. If it yeah, but if it's all white okay, actually all white people spying for me is just kind of like how I use Twitter to let me know when there's like good <laughs> groupons for nail polish and stuff like that. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but it would just be magnified. Yeah, so I'll take that. Okay, uh, g- good round, guys. These are some good questions. That's good answers. <laughs> Let's move on to reader's advisory and tell you what you should read or watch instead of or in addition to this. Um, straight up, if you haven't gathered, watch the movies. Oh, my God. Books are for chumps. Movies are great. <laughs> um, especially this one and really all the Roger Moore movies are just, like, so campy and awesome. Yeah, the shark taking um, Felix's limbs uh, actually occurs in the movies in, in License to Kill. Mm-hmm. So if, if if you were big on the sea creatures bit, then go with that movie. Um, Live and Let Die is a bit black exploitation, but it has a great song. Great song. Um, great yeah. crocodile hopping moment. Great yeah. uh, cameo by a weird racist sheriff. Great boat chase. Right. A lot of good stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it's entertaining. I have never read a book that could do what an action movie can do to me, basically. Mm-hmm. So so my contribution to this whole thing is if I wanted something that was not this book, I would go out to brunch and then a matinee showing of um, whichever action movie was showing in the theaters at the time, and then have a cocktail at home and read some erotica, basically, because sex and violence and And maybe no racism. Yeah, and breakfast, but no racism. Yeah, maybe see San Andreas starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson, currently in theaters. Haven't seen it, but... Maybe I will now. I haven't either, actually, but I'm guessing it's awesome. I'm sure. And surely less racist than this book. Surely less. In the realm of things with ladies that are similar to James Bond, a.k.a. things that I've actually seen, um, I would once once again recommend Debs, which is about a girl spy, group of women, girl spies, girl spy school. It's really good. And Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, which is just excellent. Miss Fisher, Friny Fisher's basically was created to be a female James Bond when the writer of the books that the show is based on realized that there isn't really a female character who's allowed to just be as flagrantly in people's business, doing her own thing, rich, sleeping with whoever she wants as James Bond is and created Phryne to fill that hole. And she is amazing. And the house of wayward women that she keeps is amazing. And the episode that just aired had a subplot about vibrators. What else (laughs) could you want out of your entertainment? Nothing, nothing else. You know, I'm going to be honest and I'm, 
betting that many listeners will gasp. I have not watched or read any of Miss Fisher's murder mysteries, even though I feel like literally everyone else I know loves it. Oh my it, god! It didn't sound appealing to me until right now. <laughs> the first <two laughs> it was never described to me properly, They're but this so sounds awesome. Good. The you said the word year. vibrator. <laughs> yeah, you said <laughs> vibrator. You said Lady James Bond. I've never. I always thought it was kind of more like Murder She Wrote or something. I no, don't know. no, no. She's like a hip. Well, like, and that's cool too because the actress who plays her is forty five, and she's just sexy as hell, and sleeps with all these young men that she lures into her bed, and has like intense sexual chemistry with everyone on screen, including her lesbian best friend, who she totally did it with at one point. You just know. <laughs> and by the way, I mean no disrespect to Murder Shiro. Obviously, that's great. I just, <laughs> I'm not that into like straight like mysteries, and this has mysteries right in the name. But if it's more like. Bye. I'm into that. I mean, like, it is mystery stuff, but it's mysteries that she solves by, like, breaking into buildings at night and rooting around for things and, and you know, flagrantly breaking the law. And it's great. Interesting. Um, I think Kate and I both re-recommend pretty much everything we recommended for the Target. I think the Target wishes it were this book, but it's... You know, this is another action spy, like, whatever. This, I would add, it has a little bit more lifestyle porn to it. So I'm recommending My Life in France by Julia Child if you just want to read about, like, fancy food. Or, like, you know, any cookbook, really. Um, A breakfast cookbook. Yeah. Or just eat breakfast. (laughs) You know. I'll put out there, too, there's a really good X-Men First Class James Bond fusion where... Magneto is basically Bond and Professor X is basically Felix and hit me up on Twitter if you want a link to that. Um, Also, I'm going to recommend a book that I read in grad school called When Night Falls, Crick Crack, Haitian Folktales by Lillian Lewis. Um, That is if you want to read some like Haitian stories that aren't totally weird and racist, maybe check that out. Also, a book I haven't read but I want to... um, has two subtitles it's called goldeneye colon where bond was born colon ian fleming's jamaica by matthew parker and it's non-fiction it's kind of a biography of ian fleming but also kind of a history of jamaica it's pretty new so i haven't read it yet but it sounds cool it sounds like it might explain some of this or maybe it won't i don't know but that exists fyi yeah, so we'll we'll have that stuff on our website and maybe some others um, at worstbestsellers.com under Reader's Advisory. Check that out. Or, again, don't even look at our website. Just go watch a Bond movie. You'll like it. <laughs> now we'll move on to our candy pairing, where we'll suggest a candy that complements the overall vibe of this book. I'm choosing Werther's Originals because they're old-timey, and also, um, I'm kind of just want to spite James Bond a little bit since I learned that he hates butterscotch. Uh, <laughs> I'm picking that. Uh, my choice would be candy cigarettes, a product of a different time that supposedly makes you look cool. I'm going with Aunt Jemima pancake syrup. If you need it to be a crystallized candy, then you can like pour it on like some aluminum foil and let it harden and then suck on that thing <laughs> or uh, <laughs> now we're, really we're pretty loose with candy definition yes yes it's it's a absurdly sweet breakfast flavored thing and vaguely 
vaguely racist today, exceedingly racist in the past. Yeah. Um, yeah. If, if, if you Google the ads for this thing back in the 50s, 60s, yeah, you'll see what I mean. Um, so reading this book is a lot like uh, consuming this racist maple syrup. It, <laughs> if, if you did it in large quantities, you'd feel a little sick maybe. Um, you'd think like, oh yeah, maple syrup, not so bad. Breakfast food, hooray. Um, but it's sort of bad, but also, you know, breakfast foods, vague maple flavoring, fantastic. Oh, I remembered. I want to take a step back to Reader's Advisory for one second because I have a podcast sure. advisory, um, which is so Molly and I mentioned the James Bonding podcast. They're wrong. They like Bond the wrong way. But who likes Bond the correct way is How Did This Get Made? Did an episode about A View to a Kill, which is one of my Agreed. favorite Bond movies. It's an absurd Agreed. movie. Christopher Walken is a villain with a blimp. You should watch it. You should listen to their podcast about it, which is actually a crossover with the James Bonding podcast. And it turns <gasps> out really interesting because they're like constantly calling them out and like, no, this is ridiculous. And they're like, no, it's great. And it has a really good vibe. They have correct opinions about it. Watch that movie. Listen to that podcast. A View to a Kill. How did this get made? Best. That was good. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. So now, now that I've gotten that out of my system, uh, we'll go on to the Rock Paper Snicked, where Kate will say who Dwayne the Rock Johnson would be if he were in this book, and I will say who Wolverine would be if he were in this book, and Molly will choose one of those as the winner or paper, which would be to leave this book as is. If the Rock was in this book, he would be an additional American agent who sent in to help catch Mister Big once Felix gets sharked and Bond is all broody. And um, while Bond spends a couple of weeks on the beach learning to become one with fish and getting hot oil rub downs from the live-in help, <laughs> The Rock will use his secret agent know-how and Samoan background to do Bond's whole swim out to the boat and plant a mine plan long before Mr. Big is ready to close up his operation and get back to New York. Uh, Bond and Quarrel will be awakened one morning to an explosion soon after The Rock and Solitaire arrive at their beach cottage looking for breakfast. Coral serves them up a fancy Jamaican breakfast that is described in detail. Nice. By the way, we forgot to mention, I think, how everyday Quarrel gives Bond a half-hour oil massage. <laughs> but he does. Um, okay, so if Wolverine were in this book, um, he would also go with Bond to Jamaica as an American liaison of S.H.I.E.L.D. or the CIA or, like, whatever. You know, he's on a bunch of teams, so he can be on whatever. We'll get him with Bond for this moment. Um, he would accompany Bond on his um, on his aquatic journey. He would save Bond from the octopus by shredding it with his claws, and then he would punch right. a shark in the face. And then while Bond goes on and is dealing with Mr. Big, Wolverine would just stay in the ocean the whole time and fight sea creatures um, until it's over and the ship blows up. Then while Bond and Solitaire are on their passionate leave and boning, he'll go back and visit Felix in the hospital... Um, he'll smuggle in some booze for Felix and let him know that revenge against the creatures of the sea has been served. Wow. Okay. So I intentionally uh, didn't think about that in advance. Uh, <laughs> Granada knows me too well. <laughs> um, and revenge about the, against the sea creatures sounds so, so good. Yeah. 
I mean, I yeah. think we can... I think most people would want to watch a movie that's literally just two hours of Wolverine punching sharks. I want to I want to see Wolverine take revenge against the sea creatures. Yeah. Really, that is, that is all I want to see. Yeah. Um, and there are so many scenes in this book I would like to see. Though then again, I feel like that scene's in License to Kill. Can I say, um, there is a chapter title... <laughs> Where, um, okay, typically in Bond movies, James, someone dies horribly and James Bond has some punny, like, quip at the end of it. Yeah, Yeah. and um, in the book, the villain gets the punny quip. That's true. And they, they saved that punny quip for the movie License to Kill, and then they gave it to Bond. Yeah, Bond in the movies is just a lot more, like, showy and, like, gross. I mean, he's gross in the book, too, but differently. Yes. He will kill a villain and then say some sort of punny quip. Yeah. Um, The punny quip here is actually the title of chapter 14. He disagreed with something that ate him. Yes. which (laughs) Which was said of... Felix by the villain who took Felix's limbs, but that quip in the movies was saved for James Bond <laughs> in Lessons to Kill when he takes, which which is a scene that actually sort of shows up in this book when when he takes revenge on whoever killed Felix, yeah, um, and gets that duty by a shark. So I I'm totally okay with saving the punny quips for James Bond. Agreed. I think he should get them. That is the role of the action hero. Yeah. I believe. And that that could also be a moral of the story. But um, we'll we'll go on and say our our other morals that we've come up with. Sure. So what I've concluded from this story is that sea creatures are even more deadly than black people. My moral of the story is that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. The moral I took from this is that Tales of spies and smuggling and murder are frequently less disturbing when you don't have to listen to your hero's private thoughts. Agreed. And um, now we'll turn to the part of the podcast where normally I give a moment over to my cat to reflect upon this book. But today, um, instead of Duarte's corner, we're going to turn it over to um, one of Molly's cats and offer you Pamina's corner. Oh, thank you for sharing, Pamina. I agree that completely that sea creatures are frequently tasty. <laughs> Has Pamina ever disagreed with something that ate her? <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, I don't think anything has eaten her. Um, she's agreed with her. She's disagreed with her brother Figaro, who has tried to eat her, but uh, <laughs> she fights back quite well. But canned food with sea creatures in it she is all about well while her brother doesn't care for it so she is the fierce kitty who wants to consume all of the octopus she can get her little fangs on and i approve of that agreed all right so do any humans have any closing thoughts nope i mean mine is just that um, if you like James Bond too seriously, you're wrong. But also, if you don't like James Bond at all, you're wrong. 
most people are wrong is my closing thought. Yeah. (laughs) Don't take anything too seriously. (sighs) Um, okay, also, uh, I want to say there has been a poll running on our blog for a little while. Basically, our episodes have been getting longer, partly because we've been picking longer books to read, um, or more complicated slash ridiculous ones, and partly because we just stopped trying harder to keep it under an hour. Um, basically, you know, we're not on the actual radio. There's no reason specifically why we have to stay around an hour so we were just testing though to see if people were like shut up you guys it's too long or just keep talking and the vast majority of people who actually voted said you know they like the longer episodes they want us to keep including as many dramatic readings and all that so we're just going to keep doing that and if you wish that our podcast was shorter just stop listening earlier or listen to it on double speed. You know, your iPhone gives you that option. You know, you do you. We're going to keep doing us and keep talking for longer than an hour about most of these books. And also, thanks to everybody, by the way, who took it and, like, left really nice comments, which most of you guys did, and we really appreciated them. Thanks, guys. Okay, well, thanks to you guys. Thanks to Molly for joining us. Um, you can follow us as a podcast on Twitter at Worst Bestseller with no S. You can like us on Facebook, The Worst Bestseller is spelled normal. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Please rate and review us, or we might feed you to a shark or octopus. You can follow me on Twitter at 14across. You can follow me at Renata Snacks. Molly has no desire for fame, but you should leave a good review for this amazing podcast. Oh, thanks, Molly. And uh, we'll be back at you in two weeks with True Believer by Nicholas Sparks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. We can't have sex because my pinky's broken.